0: To rising, we have a great show for you today, Brianna. It's so nice to see you on a Monday. I
1: love being here with you on Monday, Robbie. It's my favorite thing.
0: <laughs> what genuine enthusiasm! <laughs> it's terrific.
1: No, you know I love my long weekends, but it's a, it's a pleasure to be able to fill. And in we I color can. coordinated. And we
0: color coordinated. We're off to a good start. All right, <laughs> what is going on today?
1: Uh, well, first up, uh, Twitter CEO Elon Musk sat down for an exclusive interview with Fox News' Tucker Carlson, airing tonight and tomorrow night. In a teaser for the sit-down, Musk dropped this bombshell about the federal government's access to Twitter data.
0: The degree to which uh, various government agencies had effectively had full access to everything that was going on
2: on Twitter uh, blew my mind. Um, I was not aware of that. Would that include people's DMs? Uh, Yes.
1: The chief twit also issued a stark warning about artificial intelligence.
0: AI is more dangerous than, say, mismanaged uh, aircraft design or production maintenance or, or, or b- bad car production uh, in the sense that it, is, it has the potential, a uh, small one may regard that probability, but it is non-trivial. It has the potential of civilizational destruction.
1: Now, part one of the interview will air at 8 p.m. tonight.
0: And I believe there's going to be another episode a uh, day after. Uh, I'll be watching. Uh, should be fascinating to see them talk through some of these things, um, first relating to the Twitter files and all that, So, so Musk— Suggesting that there was access, the government got access to DMs as well, which is something I believe social media companies have denied. Uh, in fact, I, I believe denied in front of Congress when mm-hmm. when hauled there. I believe the, the Zuckerbergs and Dorseys of the world said something to the effect of the DMs are not being. Um, so now, so we'll have to know is that share is that routine? Like, um, like I'm not even sure it, w- it was established that content moderators are supposedly are getting access to that. It's supposed to be super-duper private, like, not even Twitter looking at them, necessarily. So, is it the case that, you know, senior Twitter moderator people can just automatically have access to that very easily? Is it the case that they're sharing all of that with law enforcement, or does law enforcement make a request? Mm-hmm. And they they gra- Obviously, if there's part of a— if it's part of a, like a criminal proceeding, you know, we've seen uh, you, maybe you can make it if there's a warrant or something, they're going to cooperate, yeah. but just, but that's not what we, you know, in the Twitter files, what we're seeing is like someone at the FBI says, hey, we don't like this piece of content. So are they just asking in an informal sense, in an informal sense, and then getting access to that? That would be a massive scandal. That would be, yes. That I mean, that itself would be sort of would, would be, I mean, it would be violating users' trust on such a level, I'd wonder if it was criminal to, to do that yes, with I, users' information I and data. I really
1: hope that the specifics are laid out and that Tucker Carlson asked some important follow-ups on mm-hmm. that issue, because we saw something similar emerge in the Facebook case, right, where Facebook was is wanting to move to end-to-end Uh, move everybody over to Messenger as a default, right, because that that has that end-to-end encryption where Facebook can say, well, I never had access to the messages as well, so that when law enforcement comes around and asks for documents or asks for information, they can realistically, plausibly say, I couldn't turn it over even if I wanted to. And then the organization doesn't have to weigh in on things like, well, should I be providing the law enforcement with information about somebody's menstrual cycle or whether they ordered this kind of abortificant Mm -hmm. or whatever as these culture wars ensue. It seems to be the case, based on that brief statement, that something is going on at Twitter which would implicate its uh, kind of complicity with, with law enforcement that may or may not look good on the company, Mm. depending on where the culture war winds are blowing at any given moment. It'll also be interesting to see how he handles the question of the Twitter files, which have been, in so many ways, the defining move of his ownership of Twitter.
0: Without a doubt.
1: And, you know, which I think so many of us have invested in, despite our criticisms, or I'll speak for myself, some of my criticisms of Elon Musk and his labor practices, how he treated his own workforce, et cetera, the fact of exposing the... Unholy relationship between the government and these social media companies, I think, is a genuinely important adventure. But what we heard last week during that um, Twitter Spaces conversation with the BBC journalist was that it seems like Elon Musk is largely over the Twitter files. He said everything has to end at some point, and there is some confusion about whether or not his choice to basically ramp down the project is a consequence of his kind of personal falling out with Matt Taibbi and potentially some of the other uh, Twitter files authors, or whether it's one that's really rooted in principle and a belief that there's nothing left to see here. Now, how you can say, make a revelation like, the government was in your DMs, but also, ah, the Twitter file should basically be ramped down, I don't know how you square those
0: two. Yeah, it doesn't sound like we're coming to the end of this project naturally. It sounds like there's a lot a lot more that we would, we ought to know, we would like to know. And I I think it's very unfortunate that Elon doesn't seem to want to work with Matt Taibbi anymore. Um, I I think they should fix, they should repair that. But if not, you can find someone else to continue looking at these things because this was, the promise you made is for greater transparency. And it would seem like there's a lot more to look at. I want to ask exactly the question. You raised this uh, before we started rolling. This is what I would want to ask Elon what is going on now? Does the is the government still routinely flagging content for Twitter moderators? Mm-hmm. What are you, what is your approach when they say Hey, we we think you know there's Russian misinformation all over the place here, or you know COVID misinformation or something. What are you doing? What are you saying back to them? What have you told your people? Yes, because Elon's probably not messaging with them directly. It wasn't these people weren't messaging Dorsey or or, uh, or etc. They were they right. were messaging you know the content moderators, right. the senior uh, officials. So what have you told those people to to say and to do? You know, have you have you told them to respond with like? Poop emojis or something, which is yeah. Elon's level of seriousness I mean, we have
1: sometimes. Heard that that's been the case. Yeah. That, that's been a default um, auto generated reply to people who've been making certain kinds of inquiries yeah. about malfunctions with their account being locked out to people who are p- potentially making more serious government style inquiries. But some folks have argued, you know, the way that he seems to have kind of discarded. Uh, the Twitter files project in Matt Aiby, based on just the comments from that uh, Twitter uh, live conversation, Twitter spaces conversation, suggests that maybe the project here was more about, you know, cleansing the timeline, as it were, uh, putting some distance between new Twitter and old Twitter by really um, being clear about the malfeasance that happened at old Twitter in a way that kind of distracts. Mm-hmm. from any questions about what is currently going on at new Twitter. And it would be such a shame, because I do think the project is substantively useful, but it would be such a shame if ultimately Taibi was, sorry, um, Taibi was being exploited by Musk to basically launder or create the presumption that there have been improvements when the reality is Taibi wasn't was given access to these older files during the the previous era, but there's been very little interrogation of the standards that are being set under new Twitter. And what we know, by the way, is that there have been some very capricious decisions that have been made about banning journalists who were reporting on the Elon Musk account, um, the decision to ban and then bring back and then ban Mm -hmm. Kanye that weren't based on any generally articulated principle, but seemingly on Elon Musk's personal
0: whims. Before we go, what do you make of the comments about AI? I'm sure that's going to be a fascinating discussion. I, for my part, I don't want to be, I I never want to be tech phobic. I I never want to say, you know, because people have warned about every new innovation and especially in the communications space and said, this is going to be the end of humanity. And instead they mostly, we work out the kinks and it's, it's a good thing that we have the radio that then we had TV that now we have the internet. Twitter. (laughs) I love Twitter. Right. So I'm, I'm just, I'm not tech phobic at all. That said, I'm a fan of science fiction. I've read all the books. I've seen all the movies where the <laughs> machines take over and kill everyone. Yeah. Uh, wh- where are you at on the on the fear the machines, aid the machines uh, spectrum?
1: Well, I'm a sci-fi, utopian kind of a gal. Right, um, you're Star Trek. That's Star your nerd
0: Trek. entry point.
1: Yeah, so short of the Borg, Star yeah, Trek has the Borg a pretty are very bad. Uh, positive view of technology and what it can do. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm interested to hear what he has to say. It does, when when you hear statements like that Mm -hmm. without specifics, and I know it's just a clip from an interview, so it's not his fault necessarily that there's not more specifics there. Um, It can serve the purpose of fear-mongering in a way that I'm a little bit distrustful of. Um, I Look, I see those dogs, those um Yeah, you uh, don't like the Dynamic, robot dogs. Uh, yeah, those uh, Masters in Dynamic. What is the company called?
0: I want to say it's Massive Dynamic, <laughs> but that's the fake company from Fringe. <laughs> um,
1: Whatever. The, you know, the the, yeah. the robot dogs that are like, they are like guns on something. them and they can open doors. And they were famously kind of parodied in Black Mirror. And right. It, 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 that sort of thing, I think, is very scary. Um, The the increased weaponization and militarization of our police force, their surveillance technology, the merging of the Amazon rings with police technology and what that means for the surveillance state, I'm very concerned about that. Mm -hmm. But um, I'm interested to see what Elon Musk was actually talking about. Yeah,
0: there's been so much panic right now about the chat, uh, GBT thing. So many, even like mainstream people writing about tech with this, in these apocalyptic tones saying, oh, it, it it learned how you could like kidnap a child or something. <laughs> well, you fed it really specific prompts to get it to that sure. point. It's, uh, they've been hysterical with that kind of stuff. So I, sure. I tend to, Lump this into that same category, but. Uh, the only but, people who should
1: know. be really terrified of chat beat, uh, GPT are uh, high school English teachers who are really struggling right now.
0: Because <laughs> all their kids, well, all their kids are gonna. The cheating. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the cheating yeah. seems like it's gonna get worse. <laughs> um, okay, maybe no ro- robot dogs coming for us yet. Uh, up next, I'll tell you what's on my radar. Stick around for that.
1: What is on your radar today, Robbie?
0: Well, the leak of hundreds of pages of classified U.S. intelligence documents relating to the Russia-Ukraine war and other matters is sending shockwaves throughout Washington, D.C. Last week, the FBI arrested the alleged leaker, a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman named Jack Teixeira, who ostensibly wanted to impress his online buddies and for months had published transcripts and pictures of classified documents he had accessed. This leak has prompted a reckoning among national security officials, federal policymakers, and the Biden administration. The federal government has reacted soberly. Plans to hold accountable the officials whose lax security measures allowed this lapse. Rethink what gets classified and what doesn't, and be straightforward and honest with the American people. (laughs) I'm, I'm joking, of course. The federal government takes no responsibility for absentmindedly allowing a kid who graduated high school two years ago to swipe hundreds of pages of ostensibly sensitive materials, though in reality much of this information did not need to be kept secret in the first place. On the contrary, the U.S. people deserve honesty about the situation in Ukraine. No one in power is going to say, sorry, we screwed up. Quite the opposite. They're going to say we need vast new powers to surveil more Americans so that we can stop citizens from having access to our secrets. Don't take my word for it. They're already saying that. Here's NBC News, which is hardly some paranoid anti-deep state website. Quote, the Biden administration is looking at expanding how it monitors social media sites and chat rooms after U.S. intelligence failed to realize classified Pentagon documents circulated online for weeks, officials briefed on the matter say. The article goes on to, quote, a senior official who says the Biden administration is looking at, quote, expanding the universe of online sites that intelligence agencies and law enforcement authorities track. Note the casual language. They're expanding their universe. It's like Marvel finally bringing the X-Men into the MCU, except not at all. Any additional law enforcement power to monitor online websites and forums will undoubtedly be misused. The federal government will never constrain itself and only surveil genuine national security threats. It will always target domestic dissent, contrarian viewpoints, and free speech itself. We know this. Time and time again, we have watched as the various heads of this federal hydra, the State Department, the FBI, the CDC, Homeland Security, the White House, have sunk their fangs into Twitter and Facebook and other social media sites. What begins as a supposedly legitimate effort to root out foreign influence on matters of national security quickly mutates into an expansive campaign against any and all misinformation. Misinformation now being defined as anything the regime declares against the interests of the so-called experts who staff its bureaucracy. Imagine what would happen if the federal government was given more resources by Congress to monitor online chat rooms like Discord. Well, we know exactly where this would lead. Federal authorities would identify politically disfavored speech, right-wing, contrarian, libertarian, leftist, in these chat rooms. They would start communicating with the administrators of these sites, flagging the disfavored speech. A coalition of nonprofits, academics, and watchdog organizations would work with the federal authorities to identify an ever-increasing number of hotspots for this disfavored speech. The mainstream media would publish article after article about the dangers of unrestricted misinformation in these forums. Congressional Democrats would then demand hearings on this urgent pressing problem, and ultimately the administrators of the chat rooms would cave and shut them down. They might even give the government information on the participants. The founders of this country possessed a healthy, if imperfect, libertarian streak, which is why they were deeply skeptical of an empowered federal government. In fact, they came up with an important list of rights that were off the table for the federal government. The feds couldn't abridge them, no matter how badly they wanted to. These included due process, search and seizure, freedom of speech, among others. So it's deeply unfortunate, but in the 200-plus years since the founding, we have not been watchful enough. And the state has abused some of these freedoms, particularly at the intersection of national security. It's all patriot acts all the time. We can't give up another single-ish inch of territory in this fight. Andy and all calls to give the federal government more power to hunt for intelligent leakers on the Internet should be rejected out of hand. So I was particularly annoyed to see this. Of course, they say, in, in the wake of a mistake they made, we need new power to watch you. You yeah. have to be watched more uh, closely.
1: It's difficult to argue with that, and I have no interest in doing so. <laughs> uh, you know, given the incredible amount of funding that they have, um, given the amount of that funding that they can't— ha- frankly, keep track of, with the Pentagon having failed, what, five audits in a row? There was a viral clip that went around, I think, last week with uh, Jon Stewart, where he was really grilling yeah. um, uh, a national security uh, individual about— It was just
0: weapons for militias in Afghanistan. Not a big deal. Right.
1: Like, do you really know what an audit is, John? Like, it was a, it was a really uh-huh. revealing interview in a lot of ways. But all of that background and then to claim, given all of the expansions of the security state that you've described— that we just need a little bit more and we could have prevented this from happening. It, 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 it It's ridiculous. It is true that there are gonna sometimes be leaks. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to assess to what extent this one was preventable, um, whether this was some in, internal practice that they should change. But they need, to, they need to be able to explain that before they ask for more money. It, it, how much money do you mm-hmm. need to keep this 21 year old from having access to documents that he doesn't need to have? Is there a different kind of protocol that you could put in place that doesn't require us uh, spending more money? Like maybe that guy doesn't isn't allowed to take his cell phone <laughs> or any other kind of camera into the room where there are these sensitive documents. Why weren't those sensitive documents? Yeah, what happened being to the What's cats? the
0: room called where they go in and there's no electronics? Um, oh, I'm not, like, uh, I'm not sure. In like that's where they do this top secret discussions. Sure. Yeah. I mean,
1: or to your point, a point that you make often, are these. Documents really not that top secret. That's why they're not under such lock and key. And is this just a lot of hot air that's being blown because of the nature, the embarrassing nature of some of the disclosures? Um, who knows? But it is very the, the government is almost never forced to articulate what it is going to be able to do with the money that they're demanding. That's actually going to be connected to whatever leak they're trying to stop. And and we saw this with the Restrict Act. Um, they're talking about TikTok bans. There's a lot of energy over that because of people's fears about um, China and the loss of U.S. hegemony and all of this. But when you like look at what the Restrict Act actually is, it's so much more expansive than actually a limitation on TikTok. And this is how you get these shoehorned policies in, these shock doctrine moments where there's this expansion of government power. And I think that you're right, that people need to keep both eyes open. Because
0: we know exactly what would happen. We, we know any—it'll begin as, oh, yeah, we're just looking for intelligence leaks, yeah. just national security threats. But we've already seen how the state does not limit itself to that issue. Then it becomes, again, FBI, looking for, oh, this is a joke tweet about the election. It might cause someone to vote on the wrong day, if it's like, hey, Republicans, the, the, didn't you hear the election is this day, or hey, Democrats, th- th- thinking that some action should be taken against that. That's exactly what they'll do to discord. Yeah. and and the, and then the mainstream media will assist them because yeah. the, the overlap between uh, law enforcement current and former law enforcement sort of national security advisors appearing, in mainstream platform, in and on mainstream platforms, suggesting all these actions be taken. And the mainstream media has bought it hook, line, and sinker, that it's so dangerous to have all these unrestricted speech spaces, that it's, it's vulnerable to corruption by Russia, et cetera.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I, it's regrettable that the Twitter file seems to be ramping down and we didn't get this far. Um, but I'd be interested to know about the algorithm piece of it, because so many leftists We're concerned that exactly this has been happening on Twitter for a very long time, Mm -hmm. that there is an incentive to filter for certain kinds of terms. And we talked about this, I think, last week, that they're going to start looking at terms like uh, red pill and "Chad" and incel that target certain communities. And there's concerns on the left that similar things are being done, and people who have said that they feel like they've been limited on Twitter for quite some time. We never got that far, Mm -hmm. but the bulk of the the way that surveillance happens on social media is via how the algorithm is programmed. And I can imagine a world where algorithms are used to comb through this kind of public discord data in the same way that disproportionately targets less mainstream politics, whether on the right or the left. So that is a, is a really valid concern.
0: And it is funny, too, that it seems to be you know a kind of fringe, right, libertarian fear of government and surveillance animated the, the the community the leaker was a part of mm. like you can see the onion headline mm. no. uh, paranoid anti-government uh, uh uh militia people are we watching them enough <laughs> like that's exactly what they're worried about yeah more rising right after this
1: the dominion fox news case that was supposed to get underway today has been delayed According to several reports, Fox News is pushing for an out-of-court settlement. Dominion Voting Systems is seeking $1.6 billion from the media giant uh, after it aired false allegations about the company following the 2020 election.
0: Dominion says its business has suffered irreparable damages after several of the network's hosts and on-air guests promoted falsehoods that the company flipped votes that were supposed to be in favor of Donald Trump to Joe Biden, therefore helping Biden win. Moreover, on Friday, Fox News actually apologized to the judge overseeing the the trial for not defining former chairman Rupert Murdoch's role at the network precisely. Fox News' legal team submitted the apology letter after the judge expressed frustration and sanctioned Fox for withholding that information like Rupert's role from the court. Now in a statement regarding the lawsuit, Fox News says, quote, Dominion's lawsuit is a political crusade in search of a financial windfall, but the real cost would be cherished First Amendment rights. While Dominion has pushed irrelevant and misleading information to generate headlines, Fox News remains steadfast in protecting the rights of a free press. Given a victory for Dominion and its private equity owners would have grave consequences for the entire journalism profession. So this is interesting that the trial expected to get underway. Is not starting yet. Last week was a pretty bad week for uh, for Fox News, given that the judge was very upset with them mm. regarding a mischaracterization of, of uh, Rupert Murdoch's um, role. So I don't know. They might the company might feel like it was going into this week, um, you know, not with their best not with their best foot forward. So that that might be. Additional reason or push for them to find a way to settle this case. Obviously, the Dominion has to be interested in settling the case, so the sum yeah. has to be large enough. It it has seemed like Dominion is really out for blood here, um, yeah, which they've prevented a strong it's case It's so to far. understand
1: why. I mean, to remember, to look back. For months and potentially years, there was a really dominant message that was promoted on networks like Fox News that this this voting machine company was, quote, this is what Giulia, Rudy Giuliani said, quote, formed in order to fix elections, by associates of the uh, Venezuelan dictator Hugo Chavez, right. um, that there were. Remember the, the narrative about suitcases full of ballots, and this was mm-hmm. the kind of rhetoric that not only was happening on Fox News, but that behind the scenes, we now know because of this lawsuit, people who worked at Fox didn't actually believe, but felt like they needed to promote for ratings reasons or to or to not get on the bad side of Donald Trump. Well, here, but here. So, Okay, In internal emails, Murdoch called the election-rigging claims really crazy and damaging, you know, not supportive of them, knowing that it wasn't true. But the ar- argument is that he didn't stop to inter- intervene and stop the network from pushing them. Tucker Carlson texted a producer at the time that, quote, there wasn't enough fraud to change the outcome, um, and that uh, the you know mm-hmm. guest who testified to the contrary, Powell, was, quote, lying, um, and on and on and on.
0: But I-, I think you could make the case that all of that is evidence that— Fox News uh, did not endorse the conspiracy theory about the election, which to be clear, again, to satisfy any policies any social media companies have where this video is appearing, Donald Trump did not win the election, Joe Biden was the legitimate winner, it was not stolen, et cetera. Um, They brought, Fox brought on guests who said outrageously incorrect things about the election, including Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, and others. A a fundamental question I see is, is, but. Isn't there a difference between interviewing someone who makes claims that are wrong and you, the, interv- the, in- the 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 host, the the employee of the company, of the platform, of the organization, are you the ones making that claim? And I worry about this from a First Amendment standpoint, from a journalism mm-hmm. standpoint. I mean, I worry about it for us. I, I, I wouldn't want to you know be on the hook or be liable for something. I, I wouldn't want to be in a case where we could be liable. So we have to lo- look at... We have to think very uh, carefully about which guests we could even have on, because if they say something crazy and we don't immediately make that disclaimer or something, like, by the way, we don't endorse Mm -hmm. that, then uh, suddenly we can be sued for a billion dollars? That's very concerning to me. Defamation
1: cases against media companies are very difficult to win for this reason. But what um, Dominion is arguing is that Fox knew that the guests were—what they were going to say before they had them on, Mm -hmm. that they had— uh, they knew what the sources of their various claims were. They knew that they were inaccurate, and there was a choice to bring them on anyway. Uh, and the, I think that the the inside, outside, behind-the-scenes, public-facing gap that we're seeing from these internal emails and mm-hmm. text messages and such uh, of Fox hosts, where they know that the information is false, I mean, it seems to me to be indicative of two things. One, a choice to continue to launder—this is an argument—to launder Um, what they know is a publicly popular but wrong position without having to personally take it by using guests as a middleman. And two, there's this question of whether or not it undermines the audience's faith in the news organization if they are so willing to kind of carry water for opinions that they privately believe are not in fact true. And some people have pointed to the fact that Uh, Just today, I believe, Fox News took out a full-page ad in The New York Times of all places touting the fact that it's a much more trusted news outlet than uh, NBC, CNN, CBS, uh, MSNBC, etc., with 41 percent of Americans trusting it compared to 20, sub-20 numbers for the rest of those stations. And, you know, is Mm -hmm. there— some inconsistency there. Um, does Fox News earn that trust when we now know from this lawsuit, regardless of the outcome of the lawsuit, but we now know from the document discovery in the lawsuit, how willing, how much willingness there is to endorse a narrative, to run, co- cover for a narrative, to allow a narrative well, that is so contrary to what the hosts themselves believe? Well,
0: but whether viewers do or should trust this network or any other is not, a, is not the question of the lawsuit, right? And I think there's a difference between thinking information is inaccurate mm-hmm. and thinking it's defamatory. I mean, we have guests on this show—I mean, you know, I'm a libertarian. You're a leftist. You probably think some of the guests from my side are saying things that are inaccurate. I probably think some of the guests from your perspective are inaccurate. I don't think it's defamatory, but I, I, I do think it's inaccurate. I mean, it's my opinion. I don't know. Well, I could be wrong. And, and that's—I think maybe those hosts thought— they were bringing on people who were saying things inaccurate, and that's different. That's a different thing than thinking well, let's, that it's defamatory. Let's drill
1: down on that a little bit because I think there is a realm where you can be plausibly wrong. You know, where mm-hmm. you could think, well, elections are a big deal. Hypothetically, let's make sure that um, any evidence of tampering, there's been anecdotal. Say there's anecdotal evidence that ballots weren't counted, that there was some foul play. And, and you have a guest that come on, comes on that says, we need to investigate that. And maybe they're wrong. Maybe there wasn't actually evidence of foul play. But I would argue that that's not defamatory. Is it? Do you see a difference between something like that and someone coming on and saying, you know, Russian spies, mm-hmm. aliens from outer space, uh, Venezuelans, <laughs> whoever mm. it is, have created this organization in the United States for the principal... Reason of rigging our elections, and therefore this company isn't to be trusted. I mean, is there a point at which you're making affirmative claims that have absolutely no basis in reality that it does slip into something that com- goes from mistake to defamation? Well,
0: I, I mean, there are there are versions of those things that right that the mainstream media said about you know, Russian involvement on on social media companies that ended up being totally false. Is it defamatory? Uh, it's just false. Now you can always sue Maybe. Again, I You can always sue. Like Dominion is also suing uh, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney mm-hmm. Powell, and I think that has total. Ba- Those are the people who said the things. I think that's different than suing the venue in which they were said.
1: Well, let's let's look at that.
0: So say hypothetically. Again, this is what's being decided. But I, yeah. I, I'm trying to I'm trying to argue from a. The threat to journalism and freedom no, of no, expression. No, no, I'm with you. I think it's an interesting question. I'm just trying to work through it. Yeah. Take the government example. And I, I just, I just, by the way, I said the same thing. You know, when uh, when uh, there were lawsuits relating to Kyle Rittenhouse and the Covington Catholic kid, I said, sure, sue that Native American man who mm. said that, who who went on TV and said he was, stand, he, you know, he gave me that mm. awful stare and he wouldn't let me pass. That was false. Sue him. You're going to sue the the TV channel he said that on. I don't. Yeah. I didn't agree with Look, that at the time. If there were, if there attacks that
1: show that Don Lemon—I'm just picking a name out of my Uh, hat—that Don Lemon secretly was like, I know that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse didn't actually shoot black people. That was one of the, Mm -hmm. you know, misinformations that was going around. Or that some other factual reality, not subjective reality of who was at fault, but some factual reality of the case um, wasn't what they were representing on the TV. Like, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to get— some Antifa Black Lives Matter person on to say he's out here shooting black people. I would argue that there is a good case for defamation, most certainly against Kyle Rittenhouse and potentially against the network if they had knowledge that those were the kind of edit- editorial cho- choices that were being made. But I-, I think this government example that you raise is an interesting one. It's very difficult to sue the government for a whole host of reasons. But imagine there was a world where, in terms of just culpability and accountability, you could say, Um, that the government was wrong to be putting out press releases and messaging that Facebook and the like were doing Russian disinformation, planting stories after Bernie wins Nevada, that Putin is helping him boost, you know, boost his chances in the election. That seems deeply defamatory. And it's hard for me not to see it as as valuable for folks who make knowingly wrong, knowingly incorrect statements to advance um, some kind of political object- objective or other kind of financial objective shouldn't have some sort of pushback. I don't know, maybe defamation law isn't the right way to do it. And I'm, I'm open, I'm, I'm really sensitive to your concern I think they're right about the potential chilling effect that it has on media companies. But what is so, I think, notable about this Dominion case and notable about the Twitter files is, the, is, is these moments where they, they internally are having a conversation where they're like, mm, this doesn't actually violate our policy, but let's take Trump down anyway. Mm-hmm. Oh, we, we know behind the scenes that Dominion voting machines isn't actually rigging the election, that there's no evidence that any fraud was enough to actually change election results, but we're going to have guests on to say that anyway. That to me does seem like a line that is crossed. Nice.
0: Well, we're going to find out uh, if this trial gets underway or perhaps a settlement will be reached. Good conversation, good debate. More rising right after this. For years,
1: Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has claimed income from a real estate firm that no longer exists, uh, the Washington Post reporting reveals. Over the last 20 years, Thomas has, quote, reported on required financial disclosure forms that his family received rental income up to hundreds of thousands of dollars from a firm called Ginger Limited Partnership. The Post reports, but that company, which is a Nebraska real estate firm that was instituted in the 1980s by his wife and her family, has not existed since 2006, again, according to The Post.
0: In 2006, the family real estate company was reportedly shut down and a new firm was created, state incorporation records reveal. In the year since, Thomas has reported income from the, quote, defunct company, which has been between $50,000 and $100,000 per year. In recent years, without any mention of the newer firm, Ginger Holdings LLC, the Post says. Uh, So actually, all it seems to be here, if I'm following this correctly, is a change in the name of the holdings company. Um,
1: Yeah, this one has much more of the ring of a clerical (laughs) error than an effort not to disclose. Again, hundreds of thousands of dollars of uh, Mm travel— costs that were paid uh, or paid by Harlan for Clarence Thomas for decades of their friendship, which was an ethics violation. but this one seems more like a mismanagement of reporting records
0: right like a very basic mistake. yeah I, I see on, uh, on on Twitter Chris Hayes retweeted, uh, Chris Hayes, the MSNBC host, retweeted uh, retweeted Josh Marshall of Turning Point's memo, saying that the issue here just seems to be that the family company reincorporated under a slightly different name and Clarence Thomas kept using the old naming of disclosures. So that is sort of a nothing burger.
1: Sure, I, I tend to agree. And even though I think that the failure to disclose the other financial gifts over a period of many, many years is significant. Um, and I gotta say if the shoe were on the liberal foot I think we'd be hearing a lot about the corruption and the pay paper play of liberal justices. Um, I think—and I talked about this with uh, Clarence Thomas' biographer, Corey Robin, on my podcast last week—that there's nothing that we learn about this kind of failure to disclose scandal that Clarence Thomas hasn't been very open about in his jurisprudence on corruption and money in politics. Right. And that, you know, he's been explicit about the fact that but for quid pro quo, me literally saying to you, Robbie, I'm going to give you this cup of coffee, you know, if you vote for me in the next election, but for explicit, like, tit for hat, gift-giving like that, he thinks that very strongly that money is speech, very supportive obviously of the kind of um, jurisprudence that gave us uh, Citizens United, believes that it is democratic and that it's aspirational for citizens to want to influence political outcomes via money and shows no concern about outsized wealth like that held by billionaire Harlan Crow having an outsized effect on our legislation and whether or not that legislation is actually geared toward the interests of working-class people who don't have as much financial mm-hmm. control. So that's not to say that this doesn't matter, but it's to say that maybe we are um, focused on the salacious instead of focusing on kind of substantive reforms uh, to how we handle money and politics in this country.
0: Right. I mean, if he was supposed to disclose the um, the, the the trips, that, that kind of stuff, in accordance with whatever the— the law or the requirement on Supreme Court justices is—I mean, there's no real check for that, because the check is the Supreme Court—then he should have done it. I I tend not to—you said pay for play. Like, I I tend not to think that—I mean, obviously, if a Supreme Court case came before the court in specifically involving that wealthy guy, or like maybe it was real estate or something. Mm-hmm. Then of course Clarence Thomas should recuse himself. Um, there have probably been examples. I'm not like an expert on this kind of thing. I'm sure there have been examples over time where Supreme Court justices have, have not recused and themselves. Clarence Thomas has when, been a part when, and, uh, of that. In when, the, when, yeah, sorry, yeah sorry. but 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 just like the pay for like this is a guy is a conservative who wants conservative policy. Clarence Thomas supports is a conservative who wants conservative policy, that's not, I think that's not quite the same as saying, like, yeah, I'm going to give you gifts and then you're going to give me something. Like, right, which is, is why Clarence Thomas is to be a problem
1: with it. And, I mean, and I again, really, like, well, people, I don't either, I guess. People have been saying Clarence Thomas was going to rule in substantially the same way. He didn't need Harlan, the Harlan-Crow relationship to do that. I think that's largely true, although I do think that sometimes folks are being a little myopic about the ways in which policy can benefit someone like Harlan Crow outside of his literal real estate Mm-hmm. properties or companies being involved in direct litigation before the courts. One thing that I think that Senator Whitehouse has done a very good job of is highlighting the extent to which, if you look at the 5-4 conservative-leaning decisions on the Supreme Court over the past— you know, a couple decades or so. While there's a lot of attention that's played to, paid to, you know, abortion and affirmative action and some of these more culture war issues. Overwhelmingly, those 5-4 Republican leading decisions are about campaign finance reform, um, tax law, the kinds of uh, financial liberties that the rich too often enjoy in this country as opposed to the poor. And there is—I think that it's been done a real disservice to working people in this country that they believe—they might believe that, you know, the conservative justices are, quote-unquote, on their side, because they are they are advocating for them with respect to various cultural issues. But the real money, the reason why the Federalist Society arguably and some of these conservative institutions and donors put so much money behind the Fed socked the Supreme Court pipeline and funding um, this particular kind of conservative jurisprudence isn't because they want to, you know, protect Americans from woke queen drag queens or whatever, but it's because they are very much literally rigging our legal system to disempower the working class.
0: Um, well, writer Jay Willis tweeted the connect. The connective tissue with these Clarence Thomas stories is that the guy does not think of himself as having any responsibility to the public. His job is to crank out right-wing opinions and hobnob with his mega-rich friends who like them. That's it. I mean, look, obviously, if you have a left-progressive perspective that, you know, all these viewpoints are bad, then you're going to not like the Supreme Court— you know, doing—I mean, the the Democratic side has not taken the Supreme Court as seriously as the Republican side has mm-hmm. in the last, you know, <laughs> Most however, 20 years. There has been a conservative plan to recapture the Supreme Court. You used to have, you know, in previous generations, you would have Republicans—Republican presidents. Republican presidents had picked— the vast majority of the Supreme Court, uh, like when I was a kid, and but you weren't having conservative decisions because they were not filtering for actual conservative belief. They were just kind of picking willy-nilly well, people that they liked.
1: Uh, well, it wasn't, uh, I think, 100% willy-nilly, but you did see a trend of people becoming increasingly liberal over the course of their time on the court. And I think that I mean that has something Earl to do Warren,
0: with people becoming O'Connor, increasingly David
1: liberal, or being or having a response to certain reactionary I think impulses that were happening within the Republican Party at the same time. So someone like Sandra Day O'Connor is presented with a, a burgeoning increasingly right, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't like to use the phrase right-wing too much, overuse it, but like right-wing movement that creates the space between them and is it that she's moving left or is the party moving right without her? It's worth noting in terms of the actual implications of any of this scandal. It's not clear that there were could really be any. This is um, from Vox. Uh, they, they asked a policy analyst from Project on Government Oversight, David Janowski, who said, one of the long-running dynamics that makes it challenging when we talk about Supreme Court ethics is that, short of impeachment, there's not really disciplinary measures in place for Supreme Court justices. Uh, for justice to be impeached, both the majority of the House and two-thirds of the Senate would have to vote in favor of doing so, so which, is, of course, is very not unlikely, going given
0: the so, makeup of Congress. <laughs> very yeah (laughs) reason to talk about it. More Rising, right after this.
1: Independent reporter Jimmy Tobias recently published an article in The Nation about new documents the House Select Subcommittee on COVID-19 released on the pandemic origin paper. You say these documents, quote, highlight the involvement of several top health officials, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, and prompting the work that led to the paper titled The Proximal Origin of of SARS-CoV-2. Jimmy retweeted a quote from a Twitter user that said, the familiar bunch of virologists and their media sidekicks, Hiltzik in particular, are furious about James C. Tobias' recent article in The Nation. The ferocity of this mob attack on a thoroughly professional freelance reporter is puzzling. He wrote Day 3 and Counting. In the meantime, I'm prepping a new NIH FOIA lawsuit. Joining us now to weigh in is Jimmy Jimmy Tobias himself. Welcome, Jimmy.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: So what did you write about that has everybody so hopping mad?
2: Yeah. Well, really, um, we just presented some documents to the public that um, the Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus uh, Pandemic obtained. And they had put out a memo in early March, you know, documenting sort of how the the proximal origin paper came to be published and some of the p- peer review process that it underwent. You know, and rather than accept that memo at face value, I wanted to see the underlying documents for myself, and so I asked the subcommittee to release them to me. And they did, and then I you know I provided the full set of documents to our readers. Um, and yeah they shed light on how the paper was published and the peer review process it underwent, but yeah I, w- I was pretty surprised to receive some vitriolic. Um, Pushback and and denunciations from certain factions of of the virology profession and their social media sort of allies
0: Yeah, it's interesting and and from my standpoint um, You know the most relevant kind of information being disclosed as a result of your terrific article is that the proximal origins? author seemed hesitant to weigh in on this question at all several days before sending the email to the journal where he'd evidently changed his mind he was pitching the paper and the question becomes you know what, if you were if you were so uh, if you lacked enough certainty to discuss this and then just a few days later, never mind you're gonna you know you, you want to weigh in with this strong paper really making the case for uh, for the for the animal origins um, you know what? Uh, what changed with your thinking. A- and the concern is that he, w- and it's been you know, acknowledged how much he was prompted to do this by Dr. Fauci and a few other people. Um, is, is that you know, the shape of kind of where we are with things now? Well, what more can we glean from this timeline?
2: Yeah. Well, look, you know, I'm a freelance reporter, you know, trying to put public records in the public domain in in a neutral fact based fashion. That's my sole goal. And really what I've been trying to do is obtain records from the very early days of the pandemic that shed light on how, you know, top public health officials like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins, as well as top scientists were talking and acting about the pandemic origins, you know, behind closed doors. And so, you know, we put these documents out in the public domain. We provide. Different perspectives from different parties. You know, some people say that this paper was nothing more than science at work, and others see sort of an effort to downplay the lab theory. You know, including um, Dr. Robert Redfield in his testimony um, before the subcommittee last month. So we're we're trying to elucidate what happened and put records in the public domain. And you know, people people can draw their own conclusions. We're not. You know, basically, all of the article is you know the scientists and the public health officials in their own words. So that's the goal, and and you know, I, that's just what I see. My value being as a reporter, getting records and putting them in the public domain, and letting people look at them and, and draw their own conclusions.
1: Well, Jamie, we tend to allude a lot to the um, lack of safety protocols uh, in place at the Wuhan laboratories. Does anything in these documents clarify what exactly we're talking about? How how um, lapsed were the safety protocols, or perhaps they were never in effect to begin with?
2: You know, these documents didn't touch on that so much. It really, you know, this kind of showed how the, the paper got to nature and then nature medicine and like sort of an inside look at sort of how the, the scientists were thinking about the lab origin. So it didn't touch so much on the um, safety concerns. You know, an earlier article I wrote had some references to that issue. You know, doc, Dr. Jeremy Farrar, you know, called, you said, said you kind of referred to, um, apparently referred to, to lab safety practices in, the, in China as the Wild West, you know, that's been a quote that's been often touted. But, but these documents were, you know, they were really a follow-up article to the deeper article we did um, earlier this year, uh, um, and, and yeah, you know, it's just been very surprising to get sort of denunciations and name-calling and things like that from professional scientists.
0: Right, and then it makes you wonder. Are the people doing that name-calling, and I I see it, I see it all over social media, the kind of, you know, people who rallied around the animal origin idea. Uh, You have to wonder if if they're ideologically motivated to prefer that explanation because it doesn't impugn the kind of research that they and government-funded scientists want to continue doing.
2: Yeah, you know, like in the last week of alone, I've been called a leech and a useful idiot and unethical, and my my article has sort of been remorselessly misrepresented by Twitter personalities. And I think, you know, I think bottom line, there really are some people who would would prefer that these documents, which offer granular details of early discussions between top health officials and top scientists about the possibility that COVID-19 may have originated in a lab, I think some influential people would really prefer that these documents never saw the light of day. Um, I also think it doesn't, you know, I think the fact that The Nation magazine is publishing them probably adds, adds to that fire. But, but yeah, you know, I, I think as with often in public records reporting, you know, people say they love transparency. Um, but when, you know, the documents of, of their friends or their own documents are pulled into the light, um, there's often a very hostile reaction. I've seen it before, although not to the same extent.
1: Yeah, I mean, your point about Nation magazine publishing this—and I mean, we were actually just talking about it before we come, came on—how so much of the um, interest in this particular issue has been focused on right-leaning magazines, with notable exceptions. Jeffrey Sachs uh, has uh, led on both this issue and some of the um, kind of discussion about who caused the Nord Stream pipeline. And, Uh, John Nichols at The Nation and others like yourself who have written at The Nation seem to have been very open and receptive to doing— what everyone should be doing, which is journalism, to figure out what the actual origins of this pandemic actually are. I mean, from your perspective then, um, you know, what do you make of the way that uh, Dr. Redfield was kind of covered, his testimony was covered? Now that you have looked at these documents, you know, he in the testimony was arguing that he felt excluded from the process, that he felt like Dr. Uh, Fauci explicitly kept him out of meetings because he was someone who was more open to uh, the lab leak theory, Fauci denied that, and we have a kind of a he said he said situation. What's your perspective on all of it, having had you know this uh, exposure to the documents now?
2: Yeah, well, you mentioned that we're filing a new lawsuit, um, and one of the things I'm looking for in that lawsuit, i, I filed FOIA requests um, to get any communications from Dr. Fauci or Dr. Collins where they even mentioned Dr. Redfield, and so you know the, the goal of those FOIA requests is to shed light one way or the other on this sort of he, sh- he said says, she said says situation where, where Dr. Redfield claims he was cut out and sidelined from these early confidential discussions because of his views. And Dr. Fauci, you know, has, has vociferous, vociferously pushed back on that on t- in TV appearances and interviews. So, you know, we're looking into that. Um, I don't think there are any conclusions that one can draw at this time.
0: Yeah, Dr. Redfield made the claim uh, on our own show when we interviewed him. He said that he respects Dr. Fauci, but he really disagrees with him on this issue and uh, did feel sidelined for being so vocal on the COVID origins question. Jimmy Tobias, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: court issued a stay Friday, allowing mifepristone, a common abortion pill, to remain available, at least for now. Justice Samuel Alito's order stipulates that the status quo on the FDA-approved drug may stand while the justices examine whether to grant the Biden administration's emergency request to keep the drug approved in places.
1: Congresswoman Nancy Mace expressed concern that a federal judge's recent ruling against the FDA's approval of mifepristone would negatively impact women's health and thus turn off voters in purple states. Here she is on Fox News Sunday with Shannon Breen. Let's watch. And I represent a purple district. I talked to a voter the other day, and she left the Republican Party over this issue. She's an independent voter, she's pro-choice. Her gestational limits,
3: for example, are at 14 weeks. I'm a pro-life legislator, I'm at 15 to 20 weeks, and so there's a lot of middle ground. I think it's important in how we talk about these mm-hmm. issues and offer
1: solutions. We've got 14 counties in South Carolina that don't have a single OBGYN doctor. So if we're going to ban abortion, what are we doing to make sure women have access to birth
3: control what are we doing about how do we improve adoption services in our country what about the kids that are not wanted what about our foster care system what about getting nurses that can
1: treat women who need you know ob-gyn care in those rural areas what are we doing about getting birth control over the counter at pharmacies there are a lot of things that we can do to protect life and not alienate the independent voter this day is set to expire this wednesday at midnight now I- It's hard to disagree with Mace, I think. I mean, she, of course, is a Republican um, from South Carolina. And I think that she is being very savvy about what her constituents actually do or don't want, as, by the way, was Donald Trump, who really warned Republicans that the Dobbs decision was not good for their political outcomes. And we saw that in midterms. It really drove uh, uh, turnout for Democrats and, as Nancy Mace mentioned, caused independent purple voters to want to lean Democrat, because this is a— um pr- priority issue for a
0: lot of voters. You're absolutely right to mention that Donald Trump has been talking about this. I actually saw some reporting, I believe in the Washington Post about whether evangelicals, one of Trump's most loyal aspects of his base are actually getting frustrated with Trump mm. because in conversations with top evangelicals, he always stresses what he has already done on abortion, that he's, he was the most pro-life president we've ever had. Mm doesn't say what he's going to do in the future. And it is kind of giving every indication that he does not want to go nearly as far as as the very socially conservative base, purely for electoral reasons, because he thinks it's an electoral loser to go as far as some had. And now I think Trump would obviously rather blame the midterm results on the Dobbs ruling than on there being really like bad Ha- Trump hand-picked candidates in you several think states. You're wrong about that? I, well, it's it's clearly both. Mm. Uh, but, uh, but n- no, I, I think the GOP going too far in abortion can motivate voters. Absolutely doesn't help when people like Lindsey Graham say there should be a national abortion right. ban. When they're trying to, you know, block this drug, which has been approved for 20, 20 years, years. half
1: of all abortions in um, the United The
0: six-week—look, most people, most Americans— have have so a tiny number of Americans have very very pro life abortion should never be permissible ever views and a tiny number of people have a abortion until birth and then slightly after whenever you want to do it views the vast majority of Americans think we're, we're down with safe legal but rare we're, said it should be a, a a valid option for some people in some circumstances. And they don't want they don't want to draw that too early or too late. So some level abortion restrictions, you can a- get away with that. There's support for it. but the, the total kind of abortion banning or setting the, the cutoff way too early absolutely lacks broad support. Yeah, I
1: didn't have uh, Robbie quoting Hillary Clinton on my bingo card today. She was but... right about that one. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, I... There's many aspects of this that I think are very difficult for conservatives to defend. The ruling itself out of Texas was—I mean, the left argues this a lot. Mm -hmm. People who are broadly left-leaning argue this a lot. But this one was genuinely unhinged, just absolutely no legal credibility uh, to this ruling. The kind um, of—the argument that conservatives make that you don't want activist judges, that you want— um laws to be passed by the legislature that you want mm-hmm. the administrative state to work as it's supposed to be working and then to have the court come in twenty years after the fact and undermine a legislative process that approved a drug that's been used safely throughout that time that is more safe than drugs like Viagra on the basis that he basically gave it a Google and decided that he had questions. You know, it's 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 a
0: really it's a really tough one don't for even, them. I, I don't even like like I, I I'm against the FDA in general, right? I'm always complaining that the FDA takes a million years to approve basic medicines and products that are available in Europe because they're a, a overly cautious, clumsy mm-hmm. Evil government bureaucracy. So.
1: But I mean, the, the posture of this is also interesting because all of these pharmaceutical companies have been among the folks that have uh, written amicus briefs, uh, briefs in support of a government's position, basically. And it's, it, is, it is an interesting dynamic in a kind of one of these healthcare fights to have the moneyed interest, mm-hmm. the pharmaceutical industry, kind of on the same side as the social mm-hmm. justice advocates in this case, because they want to be able to sell the drug that's well, been I used mean, in need, 50% of abortions. Right, you need so. medical
0: products to have an abortion. I mean, yeah, just, I, mean, it's,
1: it's, <laughs> an, I mean, there's, of course, I mean, there's an argument that uh, given how much government funding goes into these products, uh, that there should be mm-hmm. significant decoupling from the, of the for profit motive from our research and development and things like that. But as it is, um, it, it is, it is an interesting case that all of the power isn't just aligned on one side of mm-hmm. this, that there's quite a few muddy interests that are aligned with the interest of the Also, money I
0: appreciate to uh, Nancy Mace saying this, and she said this many other times that, you know, making birth control and things like that more broadly available uh, would be absolutely a good thing, and you know, can chip away at the the, the need for the w- women find, finding themselves in the situation yeah. where they might even be considering an abortion. Uh, if you have better birth control access, that should not be gatekept. That should not that should be over the counter. Please, again, that's another place where FDA and FDA-type bureaucracies are just preventing people from having access to products that would make them better well, off. Well,
1: there's there's a lot of political opposition to certain drugs being over-the-counter, birth control being over-the-counter and a lot of these other states. Not for me. States. So let's, I mean, we have to be really clear about wh- where these access issues are coming from.
0: Well, yeah, but if, it, but sure, but if you have a government bureaucracy in place that will be able to be weaponized by political factions that want to, yeah, so then right-wing people can, can slow it down because there's a process in place right, for making it more difficult. At this
1: point, I mean, plan the, the, the reason why you can get let's say plan B in one one pharmacy and not another pharmacy in the United States of America has to do with political choices of localities, not whether or not it's mm-hmm. been approved for sale in pharmacies.
0: Well, and there was a fight over whether uh, you needed a prescription to get it, right? Sure. I that mean, was, and
1: that, I, I agree that with you. Was a... And it seems like a lot of that stuff is loosening up. Through all of these. Thank God. It's uh, insane. During COVID, it's insane. I think it helped that, that, you know, people didn't want to make as many doctor's appointments. Now you can get things like Retin-A and other kind of like acne medications that used to be over-the-counter mm-hmm. through um, This kind of online diagnostics. Oh, yes
0: the, Please we have to move toward all uh, all sorts of those things make it easier for people to get whatever medicine or medical products they need i mean you shouldn't <laughs> what if you could just get you know yeah what like like for basic things that require antibiotics like basic infections you have to go to the doctor you have to wait for the test result what yeah. if you could just do all that online and then you can go pick it up from the from the drugstore maybe it's so not fully over the counter but not requiring this very labor intensive process of actually waiting in an emergency room finding time in your schedule And not knowing what you're paying for it because the insurance system is so confusing. This is all bad. Some
1: of that is driven by, I got to say, our for-profit healthcare motive where if a doctor gets to see you for 10 minutes in his room or her room and bill you for that interaction, that's, that's, part, of, okay, that's but, part of what's driving it. There because are some it's public it's health illegal, and safety right. issues as well. But if it
0: was legal to just provide these things over the counter, yeah. you wouldn't be. I mean, it's a cartel. Yeah,
1: look, I'm, I'm with you. I, yeah. I want that. There's and, a private,
0: there's a profit incentive, and then there's assistance by making the things that would undercut the profit incentive illegal, like just straight out buying the products. Yeah,
1: they definitely should should make uh, Medicare for all legal.
0: And they should. I think what <laughs> I'm saying is they should offer antibiotics <laughs> over the counter. That's what I'm saying. But.
1: All right. We'll have um, more rising for you right after
0: this. <laughs> A Missouri family is searching for answers after their 16 year old son was shot in the head after accidentally ringing the doorbell of the wrong house. Now, according to Kansas City Police, Ralph Yarl, who's black, was asked by his parents to pick up his siblings at 115th Terrace, but accidentally approached a home on 115th Street instead. Now, after ringing the doorbell, Yarl was immediately shot by a white homeowner in the head. After watching him fall to the ground, the homeowner shot Yarl again. The wounded 16 year old had to ask for help at three different homes before finally receiving assistance. He is currently in serious but stable condition.
1: The homeowner, who police have not named, was taken into custody and placed on a 24 hour hold and then released by officials. No arrest has been made. Now, people have been objecting to this person's release. Apparently, that is pretty par for the course ter- until charges are, are formally uh, filing charges are formally filed. And there have been a number of protests around this, principally because um, there is this question of whether stand-your-law-ground is implicated here again. Missouri law does not require a person to first retreat before using deadly force if they feel their life is in danger. And in cases like this, this kind of subjective belief that if you're in your home and someone comes up who is threatening, um, you have the ability to use deadly force to defend your home. And the argument that many folks have been making is that because of the public perception that Black men are are dangerous inherently. You get situations where I'm sure there's going to be an argument that seeing this 16 year old on this front porch ringing the de- the doorbell was justification in a lot of people's minds for a homeowner to swing first and ask questions later. Yeah,
0: I mean obviously that should not be justification. I wonder if the you know the ringing the doorbell is a kind of counter indicator because what the the mailman, the, the package person, the pizza guy, people, ringing the doorbell is in fact a, about a, as non-intimidating or threatening thing you can do. You're an, like announcing your presence, right? ostensibly having a legitimate, pre, I mean, anyone can, I mean, people can do that. You can, you can ring someone, right. like that is within the scope, that's not considered that's, a violation it, of someone's property yeah, rights, yeah. Je, just generally. So if... We're not to the point, obviously, where we're hearing his argument for why he did this or presenting any kind of legal defense. We're not even to the point where he's been charged, although I agree based on what we know about this so far. Obviously, we need to gather more information. It sounds like there will be a charge forthcoming. There should be a charge forthcoming. Um, Yeah, I mean, ringing the doorbell should be commonly understood as as not a—as not—you know, he wasn't— was he like in the backside or corner of the house? You know, peeking in the windows—that would be different. That I'm, not, I'm still not I mean, saying I he know, should be. I'm I, saying I if you're saying. trying to present a stand your ground, again, ringing the doorbell doesn't say to me, "Oh, this this was a provocation or a threat," because it's a very oh. standard issue thing and, for and, anyone and, to do when they come up to even and a and stranger's this is what's
1: house. Tough, of course, it, can, it is also the case that someone can impersonate a, a, a delivery person who they can say they're reading the the water pressure on your house and come in and... Like, you can right. ring a doorbell and still be doing a crime. Do you know what I mean? Right. But the question is, where are we legally going to put the onus? Are we going to put the onus on, you know, the homeowner? Or are we going to put the... You know, and give them... You know, or are we going to mm-hmm. put the onus on the person approaching a house to say, if you don't want to get shot, you basically have to proceed with extreme caution or else you're liable. For example, you know, what kind of society do we want to create? And that's what's happening with these kind of stand your ground laws. And I think choices are being made sometimes about, you know, some will readily say, yes, the homeowner should have um, the presumption, the onus should be on the person approaching the house, your home is your homestead, it's your castle. Shoot first, ask, ask question later is exactly the kind of world that we want to live in. I do think that sometimes that presumption is rooted in a belief that no one is ever going to think that someone like you is causing harm. You have people who have never been in the position where there has been a, people have reacted negatively to their existence um, because of what they look like, and you know that's difficult for people to internalize. But in a case like this, where not only did he shoot this 16 year old, but once he was shot. He shot him again, and then the shooter wasn't even the person who got medical assistance. The The kid had to ask a number of—I don't even know what kind of state he possibly could have been in trying to get someone to help him in this environment. I mean, I don't know. I really hope it's not the case that the, the laws that we're promulgating to keep us safe aren't fracturing our sense of community such that not only are we shooting kids who ring the wrong doorbell, but we're not rushing to get them help and medical assistance when they obviously need it.
0: Yeah. I, look, we need to learn much more uh, if there is a possible racial motivation here. I, I'm seeing there's calls among the protesters for their, this to be a hate crime um, charge. Obviously, we need to know more about the views of the state or you know, why the person who Shot the kid, believed he should do that, or that was, that was the right thing to do. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't see, I don't think the stand your ground law should be applied here because of the ringing of the doorbell. And I, I take your point. Yes, we don't want to live in a society where you can't, you can't knock on a neighbor's door because you are so fear that they might just shoot you. Um, I do think people should have the right to defend themselves and their property from crime when there's. When there's genuine evidence a crime is being committed, I don't think you're obligated to just stand back and watch it happen. But there was nothing so far that we know. And of course, we have to wait for more information. We could learn different information. But based on what has been reported so far, there is no reason for any reasonable person to think that you just shoot somebody when they ring your doorbell.
1: Yeah. I mean, these stand-the-ground laws have also been really interesting because there is— in, in the case of the um, uh, Texas uh, Black Lives Matter protester that was shot by someone, they were both gun carriers. And now there's all this rigmarole about whether uh, Greg Abbott is going to pardon the guy who was convicted, uh, a, a jury of his peers convicted him in Texas of murdering this Black Lives Matter protester. There had been social media comments along the lines of that he wanted to, to kill someone. There was a lot of like motive, um, I think, that probably affected the outcome in that case. And now the governor is saying, well, no, we're, I'm, I want to pardon this person in a kind of um, moment that feels very reminiscent of the um, Kyle Rittenhouse -hmm. Situation, and people are very divided along political lines about whether or not it is you have the you have the right to, if someone has a gun, to shoot them because of this perception of risk Mm -hmm. and vulnerability. But that really does butt up against this question of, and both of the people in that case were white, but but, butts up against this question of, okay, we have second amendment rights and protections for people, but for whom exactly? Is this really about defending one's right to have a gun? Does that also accrue that right accrue to the Black Lives Matter protester who was legally armed and carrying, or only to the kind of vigilante who said it was out for blood and went ahead and went out and ended up murdering this human being? It's notable that California has such strict gun laws in part because Ronald Reagan passed them after Black, uh, Black Panthers were protesting armed at the state house, and there's so there's been this long legacy of okay, we like these rights, but for whom? And who are they designed to protect? And race has been so bound up in that question throughout the history of American gun laws that it is very difficult for some people to accept that people who really are advocating for gun freedoms really mean it.
0: Right, I I take that, uh, that criticism, of course, the Second Amendment is not, it's not just for white people; it's for black people. It's it's race non-specific. Everyone should be able to celebrate it. I, and I, I would probably agree with you that there's been um, an, an unnecessary reticence to sometimes to defend, uh, you know, by certain people to defend black um, gun owners against the police. There was uh, that case. I can't remember. Maybe you can remember the name of the individual who was shot and killed. He was he was carrying a gun. He was in his car, mm-hmm, and the police that. shot him in the that car. That was Philando
1: Castile, wasn't it? Yes, Philando yeah.
0: Castile. And that was an appalling—I uh, mean, it was a crime, but a violation of his Second Amendment rights. He had every right to, to carry a gun. Yeah. Um, that case was a whole cluster of things. It was, a disaster, yeah. Things.
1: Yeah. It was uh, like a weird poverty case. He was pulled over, over and over again for kind of um, yeah. not p- replacing his lights and, and things that were wrong with his car. That was part of why he had the interaction with the police in the first instance. He was a— Um, cafeteria worker, beloved cafeteria worker at an elementary or high school, Mm -hmm. I forget which now he did everything right when the police approached his car and it, it didn't matter. There was a child in the back seat who witnessed all, you know, witnessed his shooting and, and murder,
0: you know. I it, mean, there was Tamir Rice, who was uh, a right. kid, so he shouldn't have been carrying a gun. Right. But he, w- he wasn't carrying a gun. He had a toy he gun. A he toy was, toy was shot on on seconds. arrival within seconds right. by an incompetent police officer who had been uh, dismissed from previous police forces. This one I remember because I reported on it a lot, for incompetence with firearms. Yeah. And then he was rehired by this different police force yeah. that that they get, that they, they shot him immediately. It, within uh, seconds. So, so, you know, these rights need to be— for everyone, you know, I, in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, uh, I, we did talk about that a lot on Rising. But I was, it was before you started hosting. I mean, I did feel strongly after. I didn't feel strongly going into it, but after watching a lot of the video footage and hearing what um, what one of the surviving people uh, who he had shot said at the trial, that. It did seem that he he was—or his belief that he was defending himself and that in each of the three cases where he had fired, he did reasonably fear for his life because someone was, you know, engaging in violence against him, Um, you know, including one of those people testified to that. Uh, It it seemed to me that that acquittal was the right um, cause of action there. So.
1: Yeah, so the question remains, you know, I think that people would accept that outcome a lot more if, it, if they imagined a world in which a black Kyle Rittenhouse mm-hmm. ran into a crowd protesting, let's say, a Tea, a tea Partiers or a Trump supporters ended up shooting multiple people, killing multiple people, and being acquitted. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I know mean, that sometimes those thought prosecuted. experiments are a little cute. I don't. I don't want yeah. to like overly go down that hypothetical road because it's just a hypothetical. Yeah,
0: and also he wouldn't. He, I mean, possibly depending on what city but we're it's, talking it's, about, it's, he wouldn't even be prosecuted. There's, I mean, there's tons of gun crimes not being prosecuted.
1: Someone choosing a, a black man, a black teenager.
0: I guess if it was politically salient enough, but
1: choosing to enter a crowd of hostile white conservatives, mm-hmm. the hostile white conservatives start to grab at his gun, etc., and he shoots and kills multiple of them. It's just, it's difficult, you know, whatever you think about what the outcome should be, it's difficult to imagine with certain little facts like that changed the same outcomes being consistent across. And I think that's what people have the biggest issue with in the cases like Kyle Rittenhouse. I don't know, it's it's tough. We'll continue to follow what happens with this story.
0: We'll have more rising for you afterwards. Democratic Representative Katie Porter has been accused of fostering a hostile work environment for some of her staff. She responded to that allegation on The View. Let's watch.
1: About another allegation. There have been some reports that um, alleging that you
3: created a toxic workplace um, for staff and I want to give you a chance to respond. Yeah, look, I am incredibly proud of my staff. The book is actually dedicated to yeah. my staff and my volunteers and I say yeah. this in the book and the dedication and it's true. Um, I may stand in front of them, but they are really the ones leading the way. Yeah. Um, for every viral moment you see, for every whiteboard that I, I get the words spelled correctly and I <laughs> yeah. know what I'm talking about, there's a ton of amazing people behind me and helping me. and I'm so grateful for them. You know, I think we see, and I saw this as a professor certainly, um, female professors, particularly women of color, um, get much worse teaching evaluations. Yes. Um, And and even when the, you know, all the professional evaluations are the same. And so we see this again and again, lots of the so-called bad bosses um, are women and disproportionately people of color. I think it's really unfortunate because those are the very voices we need more of in our government. So I'm proud of my staff. I'm proud of the relationship we've built. I'm proud to have them as my team moving forward.
0: She kind of changed her race there to associate herself with the cause of people who are wrongly maligned for being bad bosses.
1: Laundering one's own bad behavior by changing women to women of color Mm -hmm. is a time-honored tradition among a certain kind of uh, white liberal feminist, I got (laughs) to say. Um, That is frustrating. I'm of two minds about this one. Mm The Katie Porter accusations burbled up on a website called, um, uh, 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 like a Hill staffer website. Um, right, and we covered Dear White them here. We cover them
0: here. We should actually give a little bit more background. Uh, we did interview the former staffer who had made uh, some of these accusations. Uh, specifically in her case, in this staffer's case, um, there was a, I was interested in it from a, like, zero COVID, uh, uh, perspective. Yeah. Here's the tweets. So the staffer was accused of potentially putting Katie Porter at risk of having gotten COVID for not like, you know, following all the exact protocols as militantly as possible yeah, or something. Yeah. They had gone to and, a
1: funeral and, and yeah. Katie Porter accused the staffer of, because of her exposure at that funeral, making her
0: and she was stick? just not having it. The, the, like, the Zapper was like, "I'm so sorry. I understand why you'd be frustrated." And Katie Porter was like, oh, "Okay, well, you know what? You can't come in anymore. You're gonna finish this out." Yeah. She was on some kind of fellowship or program. You're finishing this out remotely. Yeah. Let let us know. You know, let's work out a time where you can. You know, you, you disease ridden flea to to reclaim <laughs> okay. your stuff from the office. That was the tone of it. Right. Obviously, that was not a direct quote. And that was I, the tone of what I she. I do had to think say.
1: that. We have, I'm of two minds because, one, the fact that that burbled up on this um, account, which is kind of known for being an outlet for staffers in a routine way, feels a little bit less like a hit piece. Some of these hit pieces that do tend to come out among disfavored candidates— in who are in hotly contested races, and which I will take with a grain of salt. So it feels a little more organic because it emerged out of that as opposed to an accusation that first appeared in the pages of the Washington Post or what have you. But I still do take Porter's point that it's not that I don't think that she in all likelihood has been terse, that has has let go of that one staffer mm-hmm. for reasons that I might not agree with, et cetera, et cetera. The question is whether or not Those behaviors, which are unfortunately pretty widespread, are being weaponized specifically against certain candidates for ideological reasons that are separate and apart from anyone actually caring about how staffers are being treated. Mm -hmm. And that's a very difficult line to toe because no one wants to seem indifferent to principals who are treating their staff poorly, especially people like Katie Porter, whose politics indicate that she should be very invested in labor issues and the protection of working-class people. However, um, you know, what? You know, are we living in a world where we can very predictably throw every usually left-leaning candidate under the bus because of an accusation like this and then get left with a more conservative candidate who is also a bad actor but just mm-hmm. isn't getting hit pieces done on them? So we saw this happen with— when- Well,
0: what, what do you mean? There are hit pieces— no, no media outlet is pulling its punches if there's evidence some staffer is upset. Maybe Democrats are more inclined to hire but staffers who are—
1: I think that that's part of it. But I also think that the inconsistency between your values and how you're treating people is oh. part of what's going on here, right? So take what happened in the New York mayoral race. Um, Scott Stringer was the leading kind of left candidate. He wasn't any big lefty, but there was a kind of a left coalition that had decided that he was going to be the one. Mm -hmm. When he got allegations, these Me Too allegations from a former staffer, the left, because it is principally invested in issues like women's equality, dropped him like a hot potato. And it turns out the allegations were meh. Uh, it was framed as being a young intern. She was an intern back in the day, but she was like a 30-something staffer. Apparently, they had a consensual relationship. She was disgruntled, I believe, doing some yeah, work for the Andrew Gang campaign. But I think left candidates are more more vulnerable to those kind of smears because we don't want to be perceived as endorsing candidates who are predatory etc. Whereas a conservative candidate, I mean people stood behind Roy Moore with all those allegations of him picking up teenage girls in the parking lot. Well,
0: not everyone and he lost.
1: He lost. A lot of people the Republican establishment stood by him through all of that that scandal. He
0: got a lot of criticism on conservative news.
1: That was my real recollection of it.
0: My recollection is
1: so. I mean, being that, consigned to defeat, and we saw this also with um, Shahid Buttar, who was one of the few people to ever really credibly challenge Nancy Pelosi uh, in San Francisco, who you know had staffer complaints. It was short of like anything Me Too, but it was the same kind of stuff. He treats people poorly. He has a short temper. He's aggressive. Marion Williamson just got one of these articles written. And so I think the left is going through a process of trying to figure out how responsive it's going to be about these things. How do you ethically credit what victims are saying without ending up in a situation where ultimately the people who are left in the field are Nancy Pelosi?
0: Well, and let's— and there's a difference between some of these accusations sure. too. I mean, there's like Me Too kinds of accusation. Then there's some of the things said about, like I actually have a, the Katie Porter one specifically interested in me interested in me because of the COVID angle, and I, 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 I worry that people who had this, you know, still lockdown and be safe mentality about COVID would be governing us. But generally speaking, I, I like the, remember the Klobuchar accusations. Yes. They, uh, maybe I'm I'm alone. You probably disagree. I read that. and I was like, eh, who cares? You who
1: amongst us hasn't been asked to dry shave their boss's legs under their desk? Hell,
0: <laughs> that was oh, one of the accusations. Like the the young people complain too much about having to do like a, the actual work of working for a demanding political person. I mean, sorry, you're not special. Do the job. Look,
1: I, I do. Th-
0: and I, the second time they get they get their feelings hurt a little bit, they wanna they wanna rush to the to the media and turn it into a thing. It's just this grievance based outlook.
1: Look, I think there is a little bit of that. I had definitely witnessed working with younger staffers and thinking, oh my goodness, don't go to a law firm if you think this is a problem. But that, you know, I'm torn because it's just because things have been bad in the past doesn't mean we should be saying, well, I went through it, you should go through it too. There, I do think there's this renegotiation of a line, you know, should staffers be berated because you didn't pack a fork and now Amy Klobuchar has to eat her plain salad with a comb? Mm-hmm. I would say no. But if I worked for a candidate like Amy Klobuchar and I really believed in her, would I probably keep that to myself, you know, that she yelled at me because I didn't get her a fork? Yeah, I would keep that to myself. I mean, I believed very deeply in the Bernie campaign when I worked for it and didn't feel like every kind of interpersonal issue in the office needed to be a referendum on the principles validity as president of the United States, when he was not even there, he's traveling around the country. And I do think that sometimes those things get unfairly conflated. You know, a bunch of women of color walked off of Elizabeth Warren's Nevada campaign. The press, frankly, mostly covered it as a triumph for Warren in negotiating a difficult time. But never mind. Is it Elizabeth Warren's fault, per se, that staffers halfway across the country had these issues? Does that mean that she's not going to be a good president? Maybe not. Mm -hmm. And so how much do we weight these kinds of stories? I just think it's, it's difficult. And you can't ignore the ways in which the outcomes don't necessarily match with having the effect of having the most, you know, politically strong um, and ethical people actually
0: in office. No, this is is actually a a problem I've noticed from watching or covering kind of progressive activist movements that they've developed this culture of, uh, of almost too much. Exposure to to you know getting, having an interaction you don't like internally to the movement and thinking it should be blown up to epic proportions that it should be covered in the media it shouldn't be something you d- just deal with privately or yeah. complain about privately yeah. everyone complains about things in their workplace privately that's like Alex how it goes Morris was another one the, yeah. the oh, yeah. Well, yeah well that's yeah again that's I think I think, the, I think the weaponization of Me Too stuff. Is, is very... Especially became for a gay candidate, who was so vulnerable pitch. to that. Yeah. And
1: people already wanted to do this kind of grooming discourse. Um, he was very vulnerable to that, and it's a shame. Um, yeah,
0: that was insane. That was a yeah. huge, horrible misstep there.
1: All right, let us know what you think uh, about Katie Porter and other similar kinds of allegations in the comments, and we'll have more Rising for you right after this. America's favorite podcaster, Joe Rogan, surprised listeners last week after he sided with Anheuser-Busch over the Bud Light-Dylan Mulvaney partnership. Rogan dismissed the uproar while drinking none other than a can of Bud Light. Here's a snippet of what he had to say.
4: Let's yeah. get, get some Bud Lights. Let's uh, do this. Yeah. In support of Bud Light and their time Let's of Let's be stress. allies by getting a little day drug. Be, We're going to be allies. <laughs> yeah. You know, because Kid Rock and Travis Tritt have put the f- hammer down. Yeah, I know, they're really f- fighting the good fight, man. Here's my take. Okay. <laughs> <sighs> like what you're what you're doing, what they're doing is just spreading the brand to a, an extra group of people. Yeah. Why if something is good, do you give a f- who's got it? Like would we do this with cheesecake? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like if there was like a bomb cheesecake and all of a sudden, you know, some radical group like uh-huh. Antifa really got into the cheesecake would be like "F this. Yeah. And if the it, like if the cheesecake factory sent Antifa a cheesecake, you yeah. know, ten, for 10 more years of chaos, you know, like, <laughs> like a celebratory a celebratory yeah.
0: Moreover, Donald Trump Jr. has also stepped into the fray. This one was a little surprising to me. He's urging those boycotting the beer over the Mulvaney Partnership to stand down. According to the New York Post, Don Jr. told his fans their outrage is understandable, but their boycott is unjustified, saying, quote, we looked into the political giving and lobbying history of anheuser Bush, and guess what? They actually support <laughs> Republicans. I uh, told you it was this a, last week. Okay, but it was I looked at it. it was a 60-40 split, <laughs> yes, so it's not— I, its uh,
1: I said this last week. I say this every time something like this happens. Corporations do things for profit. In fact, it is required of them to make decisions on the basis of profit and shareholder profit. Like, that is the whole— Purpose of a corporation; it is illegal for them to behave otherwise, and that is what is happening here every single time. Every corporation gives to Democrats and Republicans, no matter who wins, they win. This is a crazy story for people to have gotten worked up all over. I'm sorry.
0: I mean, I don't disagree. I didn't get worked up over <laughs> no, it. I don't. I, I feel the way Joe Rogan felt yeah. about it. Who cares? Don't if you don't like it, don't drink it. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know why Dylan Mulvaney was a good spokesman for the product, but I don't care. Yeah, I just like, don't care. I
1: think, I think Joe Rogan is There's a lot,
0: there is a lot that. of people out there who don't care. We're, we're overlooking the, sure. the kind of, um, because there's, I, I think some people on the right who don't really understand, actually don't understand what's annoying about wokeness, about the, uh, let me be clear, about the certain, pol- what we used to call political correctness, a certain aspect of it that is so grating. And, and or, or is it's actually been, correcting of you yes. for saying the wrong, if it's, it's actually it's, saying you did something wrong because you're not, you you did something politically incorrect, you said the wrong thing, we want to police you, that gets to people. This wasn't actually policing anyone, this is just someone else, some other thing, doing their own thing. That is not viscerally annoying to people in the same way, and sometimes people on the right, because they don't, they didn't get it in the first place, was it, yeah, that's all wokeness, we're against all that, but they're not you're missing something. Because some people just want to be left alone and they'll leave you alone. And if you're bugging them and if you're like poking them and saying you're doing something wrong, then they're gonna get really annoyed and there's gonna be backlash. But if you're not policing them, you're just doing your own thing. There's like a live and let live kind of ethos out there that is sometimes missed in this discourse, So Sam
1: Adler-Bell wrote this great article in New York Magazine like over a year ago now where he talks about the part of wokeness that I think is so missed by so many conservative Commentators who haven't really thought through what is actually bothering them. I mean, there's like an agenda mm-hmm. aspect of it, like just take, putting that aside and taking the good faith aspect of it. There is the, the, what's annoying is the pretending that everyone should already know everything already, being scolding and judgmental mm-hmm. and using changing social norms as a cudgel to cordon off people yes, in the know versus exactly. people in, and not in the know. Exactly. And that is very annoying. And you can call that Wilkins, you can call it what you want. But I think there's a lot of agreement across party lines that that is annoying and cringe and wrong. Mm. However, <laughs> I think you're right that this is not that. I think that Joe Rogan is really funny in that clip. I do think he misses the point a little bit. It's not that people are mad that Dylan Mulvaney has a Bud Light, is drinking a Bud Light. It's the idea that Bud Light is choosing to make her a representative of the beer and spending money on making her a representative of the beer, and they want to object to what they perceive to be um, spreading a kind of cultural ideology that they don't agree with. They don't disagree with the cheesecake in that scenario. Mm -hmm. They disagree with the idea of using cheesecake to promote transgenderism or whatever it is they have a problem with. I obviously don't agree with that position, but I think that's a more accurate take on what they're mad at. Now, if that's what you're mad at, to then claim, everybody stand down, don't be mad at this, because uh, anheuser Bush gives incrementally more to Republicans and Democrats, is a real admission that your principles are kind of malarkey.
0: Yeah. I don't think that from Trump Jr. is going to—I don't think that's going to be a winning argument. I don't think—if he says that, I don't know where he made that. On, on his Rumble show or on Twitter or he says that, hey guys, stand down, it's okay. They give slightly more money to Republicans than Democrats, so they're fine. I bet that would not be a popular comment. <laughs> I bet there would be a lot of dunking on him, even from people, especially from people on the right. Um, it would not surprise me if your Daily Wire types, your Matt Walsh's, your et cetera, et cetera's go off on uh, both Rogan and especially Don Jr. for saying this. They're going to say, this is conservative ink. I mean, you you can't really make that claim of Rogan, but you can certainly make that claim. This is conservative ink. They don't really, all they care about is raising more money for the Republicans, the GOP. They'll never do anything that you want. It's all hollow, it's insincere, um, which they'll have a point on, honestly.
1: Yeah, and to the point of the hollowness and the insincerity, of course, Rogan referenced Kid Rock, who famously was shooting cans of beer as a show of protest. Kid Rock then went on to endorse a hard uh, seltzer called Happy Dad, which, plot twist, uh, has Caitlyn Jenner as one of its spokespeople as well. But she's
0: again she's a Republican, so that's fine. She's
1: she's a she's a good trans person <laughs> as opposed to the bad trans people like Dylan Mulvaney. I remember She was
0: a supporter of Ted Cruz in twenty sixteen. She
1: continues it's to amazing. be a supporter of Donald Trump and conservatism, and it is very confusing. Um and it's not entirely clear what they're gonna do with her given that trans issues have become such a political uh, fulcrum.
0: I mean, there are t- there are conservative trans people. We interviewed, uh, I-, I guess that was me and Bacha, maybe, uh, Blair White, who's a very conservative uh, trans woman YouTube commentator mm. and just, like, totally disagrees with the rest of the transgender community uh, on Twitter various aspects of the policy. Yeah, I mean,
1: I do think that there is much more diversity of an opinion within the trans community than mm-hmm. is acknowledged in kind of to the Twitter, social media spaces in a way that I think sometimes does a disservice. To many trans people and the diversity of opinion, I mean, I've been having some really substantive, good, tough conversations on my call-in show with many of my many guests who call in who are the, the, themselves trans, not conservative, um, not Republican, but who have thoughts and feelings about the emphasis on, let's say, women in sports versus mm-hmm. some of the other uh, issues that are perhaps more pointedly affecting the lives of trans people day to day. Um, and how those things are being framed, um, more nuanced opinions on the nature of of sex-segregated sports and whether or not that's a good thing, and there's a legitimate argument there, as opposed to characterizing it all as transphobic. So I I think that's definitely true. But someone—back in the day, before there was such Mm -hmm. a pointed focus on trans issues, I think Caitlyn Jenner had more of a past supporting Trump. These days, I think she's going to get some pretty tough questions about Mm -hmm. whether or not she thinks she should have a right to— Dress as a woman, um, which would be banned by some of the legislation coming down the pike in some of these states. So I really look forward to continuing how that to see how that all I'm unfolds. I'm just
0: relieved we can drink beer again, Brianna. <laughs> it's, it's it's we've gotten permission from Joe Rogan and even Donald Trump Jr. to drink yeah. to have a beer again. God so, bless. Thank goodness. <laughs> Tomorrow on Rising, Jacobin columnist Ben Burgess will join us to tell us why he believes the Pentagon leaker is not a traitor but a public hero you won't want to miss that for sure be sure to like share and
1: subscribe so you never miss any of our content and for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts
0: we'll see you back here tomorrow take care